This is Being Catholic with Bob Johnston on Catholic Spirit Radio. Hi, this is Bob Johnston, and you're listening to Being Catholic right here on Catholic Spirit Radio, 89.5 FM and 92.5 FM in good old McLean County in Bloomington Normal, 88.3 in Pontiac, 97.1 in Lincoln, 89.1 in DeKalb and Sycamore up in northern Illinois, covering much of central and now northern Illinois and expanding to cover our state even further. We're going to have a great show for you today. Today I'm going to talk, I've been talking about eventually doing something on the 1619 Project and showing how the whole idea of the 1619 Project is ridiculous. And it can be shown to be ridiculous just through plain logic, and that's what we're going to do today. So we'll get to that a little bit later. I hope everyone has had a happy Easter the weather uh, on this weekend after Easter is uh, sort of turning into summer weather, and I guess it's supposed to turn back to the 50s next week, so we're sort of going up and down like a yo-yo, but it's certainly nice uh, while it's lasting. I'm here with my wife, Lynn, and uh, before we start, she's going to talk to you a little bit about the movie she's seen, a very good movie, and people uh, might want to see it, and she'll give us a report on it. The, movie, the name of the movie is Father Stew. And uh, she saw it uh, Easter Sunday with her daughter, so she'll talk about that. Remember, we're brought to you by you, so anything that uh, we do, we depend on you. And any donations that you're able to make, we certainly could use, and we certainly depend on. So large or small, we would be happy to have them. And uh, if you'd like to make a donation, you can go to catholicspiritradio.com. Again, that's catholicspiritradio.com. It's our website. It will tell you a lot about us and about things that you can do as well as make a donation. Uh, if you would like to call our station, our number is 309-807-2427. Again, that's 309-807-2427. Sorry. And if you want to call that number, you'll be able to make a donation that way as well. So again, uh, we're brought to you by you, and we, we would be very grateful for anything that anyone might be able to give. So we'll get on with the show, and I'm going to turn this over to my wife, and she wants to talk a little bit about the movie that she and her daughter saw last Sunday and uh, said it was a very, very good movie, and a lot of people might want to take the time to make sure they're able to see it. Uh, I'll try to see it uh, in the future. I wasn't able to go with her and uh, my daughter at the time. So, Lynn, you want to talk about the movie? Yes, I do. Uh, do want to point out Bob kept talking about her daughter. It's his daughter, too. <laughs> yes, I think we, it is. We, I think we do that. Okay. My daughter, you know, it's your daughter. And sometimes it's your daughter did this. With or, our daughter, I guess is what I want to say. <laughs> You know, people, how it goes. Exactly. Um, yeah, it, I, yeah, it could be mistaken the way I said it. I guess I just wasn't. Oh, I do that, too. You get talking here. <laughs> but and for people that don't know you, yeah. it's like, it's her daughter, I'm not my daughter. <laughs> I'm looking here at my uh, legal pad. I've got things written down on it. I'm sort of getting ahead of myself. I should have followed. Him. I, I've got all my points that I want to make sure I talk about. And I was looking at some things down here getting ahead of myself. And I think that's that's what happened. Well, that's, I'm just kind of teasing you, Bob. Okay. All right. Karen and my daughter, Karen, our daughter, see, I did it too. Our daughter, or Karen is our daughter, the youngest one. 
She's the only one that lives around here anymore. And uh, she and I went Easter afternoon to see Father Stoop. And, you know, reading the reviews, I I wanted to see it and I didn't want to see it because I wasn't real sure. The reviews have not been good. But I think you need to set aside all those things you read about, except the fact that there is swearing in it. And I don't know where in a gym, you know, or anywhere else, anywhere involving a group of men, they talk like the proverbial sailors or whatever. They swear a lot. That is true. The first part of the movie is there's a lot of swearing in it. But you have to overlook some of those things sometime and look at how people are and how conversion happens. That's what the movie's about, conversion. And this man was an amateur boxer, and he had some experiences. He was almost engaged to be married and so forth. But one of the provisions was he had to be a baptized Catholic before she would marry him. And then he went to RCIA, learned about the faith, was converted. He Well, his conversion wasn't complete yet. He did it for reasons of wanting to marry her. But as it turned out, God had the last laugh, I guess. And that didn't come to fruitation. He received a vocation from God, and his uh, journey to becoming a priest is what the movie's about and how slowly his conversion was. You know, most of us don't get off knocked off the horse like Paul when you are converted. And it takes a while. Even Paul took a while. But anyway, it's really well worth time to watch it. I would like to maybe even see it again. Um, I'll go with you. We can go again. Yeah, I, th- I think you would really like it. Okay, I'll, I'll be honest with the audience out there. The reason I didn't go was because we were supposed to go, I think, at the leave at one thirty or something like that. And I had fallen asleep in the chair, and she had forgotten, I guess, she was getting ready and so forth and doing things. And all of a sudden, we had about 20 or 15 minutes to get ready. My daughter was coming over. Our daughter was coming over to pick us up. And I just said, well, why don't you just go ahead and go? I'm not even ready yet, and uh, I'll just stay here and rest. <laughs> that's yeah. that's what happened. He wanted to sit in the chair, him and the cat, and sleep, and yeah. they did. <laughs> that's, what I, that's what I did for the afternoon. <laughs> the other thing I would like to briefly mention is um, tomorrow is Divine Mercy Sunday. Take advantage of uh, whatever your parish is offering for this period of time, and Receive all the graces that God is ready to give to you during uh, this time of divine mercy. This was a result of uh, Sister Faustina in Poland and the revelations she received. She was uh, canonized just a few years ago, really. And Pope John Paul, St. Pope John Paul, He canonized her and instituted the beginning of the celebration of divine mercy. This was Jesus' 
message to her to get get this established. And here's this little nun in Poland in this uh, poor area and really isolated in a way from the world. She was a, not able to read and write very well, and she was given the grace and went Christ wanted her to depart to the world, to give to the world. She was able to do it, and she wrote a diary. And out of the diary, you can buy it today, are all the things that Jesus taught her. So do take advantage of uh, this time of mercy and the grace you receive. You uh, go see the movie and you'll understand a little bit better what grace is, believe me. Well, Bob, you can tell us what the 1619 Project is all about? Okay, we'll talk about that, and we'll talk about why the whole idea of it is uh, ridiculous, and logic itself simply refutes it. And uh, I'm going to read from an article in the National Review, uh, and uh, the article is entitled, The West Didn't Steal Its Way to Wealth. And it's written by one of the writers for the National Review, Deidre Nansen McCloskey. And uh, he writes articles a lot on economics. And uh, economically, uh, of course, the 1619 Project says actually that our country didn't really start in 1776 with the founders and the Declaration of Independence and the later Constitution, that our country actually started in 1619 when the first slave was brought over and that our country is built on slavery and all of its wealth, even preposterously go to say that uh, capitalism itself and so forth was uh, all based on slavery and cotton and the uh, cotton industry and that capitalism itself, you know, it needed slavery, uh, that they financed uh, the cotton industry in the South and gave them the money in order to buy slaves and so the cotton could be sold and the manufacturers in the North could process cotton and all of that kind of thing. And uh, the wealth of the West and especially the United States all came from cotton and that was all dependent on slavery. And so the whole core of our country and so forth was based on slavery and inequality and the uh, uh, in effect, uh, stealing of the black man's, you know, of, of African labor. Uh, the whole thing is totally preposterous and we'll, we'll show why. I mean, anyone should be able to understand that the whole idea, of course, is being pushed by people that don't believe any of this, the people at the top, and they're using this idea of America's injustices and so forth as a means of power and control, as a means of, uh, of uh, grabbing wealth for themselves, wealth and power for themselves. Uh, you always have to remember when you look at the left and they propose an issue that the issue is never the issue. And so this whole idea of the 1619 Project and slavery is not the issue. The issue is always to the left, the idea of revolution, of taking over power and keeping it for themselves and money and power is always the real issue. But there are people, especially <laughs> professors in colleges and uh, worst of all, probably the young students who are learning to hate their country because supposedly it's built on all these things, who simply actually accept this nonsense. 
and uh, that it is nonsense will be plain and easy to see. It's not even necessary to uh, go into it very deeply just to see the, you know, the, the nonsense of it all. And that's what we're going to do. So I'm going to read from the article, The West Didn't Steal Its Way to Wealth, uh, by Mr. McCloskey. And uh, it's self-refuting, and it's uh, anyone who grasps it will understand that uh, it, all the the uh, charges and so forth made simply don't hold water and don't even stand. And of course, then you can realize that why is this all being done? It's being done for one more reason, again, to enrich and empower certain people at the expense of others. That's what it's for. Uh, McCloskey says, "Let's be clear ethically." Imperialism, as in South Asia, was very bad. Enslaving people, as in West Africa, was too. So was shooting striking workers, as in Kentucky. There are no excuses for the opium wars, or King Leopold II in the Congo, or the U.S. seizure of the Philippines, or Ford's goons beating up workers at the Battle of the Overpass. Stealing, coercion, murder are evil. So McCloskey is recognizing this right off the bat. And of course, slavery is evil also. Wealth and its civilization, though, did not depend on the evil. The left channels Vladimir Lenin in claiming that the West got rich by robbing the poor. You don't get rich by robbing the poor. And the right channels Theodore Roosevelt in claiming that the world got civilized by conquering the poor. Both sides are wrong. People got rich and civilized by liberty, not by coercion. And what he means by liberty is not just liberty, but the uh, right to keep your own wealth that you make and the right to keep the products of your invention and your labor. In other words, uh, an incentive to innovate is what built the wealth of the West. He goes on, he says, Nearly forever, from the caves until about two centuries ago, the average human, except for a few lords and priests, dragged along in today's prices. Remember this. They dragged along in in today's prices on $2 a day or less. Can you imagine that? No, I can't. I can't even. (laughs) Try living on $2 a day. But for most of our history, most of the history of the world, most people in the world, out of the billions of people, millions of people, lived on an average of $2 a day or less. In other words, they just scraped by. They eked out a living hand to mouth from day to day and month to month and year to year. And, of course, their lives uh, were not long and uh, brutal and short, as the philosopher says. It says, uh, in tr- some people actually still do live on $2 a day in our money, in today's money. South Sudan, for example. Then from about 1800 or 1900 or 1960 to the present, a great enrichment, dwarfing the mere doubling in the so-called Industrial Revolution of 1750 to 1850, made the average human 25 times richer. So we're going to talk about what happened. The number nowadays in the same prices is about $50 a day. In other words, now people are averaging throughout the world about $50 a day. That might not sound a lot in our money in today's America, in the United States. But averaging for the whole world, it is a lot. 
It's a lot more than the $2 a day that people were living on. Think China, Brazil, and Botswana, and Finland, Ireland, and Iceland, once miserable and colonized, they stand well above $100 a day. At $50 or $100 a day, people get food instead of constant famine, long lives instead of parasites, PhDs instead of illiteracy, high-rises instead of living in hovels. Every nasty jerk in history has stolen and usually gotten away with it. As Gibbon said in 1776, history is little more than the register of the crimes, follies, and misfortunes of mankind. And there are a lot of crimes, follies, and misfortunes of mankind. So stealing by imperialism and enslavement caused the great enrichment, right? And the answer, of course, is no, it's not right. Stealing did not cause that. Stealing has gone on for centuries. Stealing has gone on probably ever since the first caveman walked out of the cave and looked around. But it has not enriched people, and it has not made countries rich. Do the numbers. If you seize your neighbor's house and her stuff or his stuff and enslaved his husband or her husband or his wife, you might get a percent richer, maybe 50. Call it uh, 100. Great for you. Foreigners shall rebuild your walls, said the Lord to Jerusalem through his prophet Isaiah, and their king shall be your servants. Your gate shall be open continuously, that through them may be brought the wealth of nations and their kings under escort. escort. Good for Jerusalem. In the zero-sum world before 1800, stealing and enslaving got the jerks 10, 50, even 100% richer. Hallelujah. But it was not the 25 times or the 50 times richer that we see happening from 1800 until about now. So we're going to stop here and take a break. We'll come back and we'll talk about how that 25 or 50 times richer happened. And it certainly didn't happen through slavery. So stay with us. We'll be right back. You've been listening to Being Catholic with Bob Johnston on Catholic Spirit Radio. Listeners support Catholic Spirit Radio in many different ways. Some write checks. Others use credit cards. But did you know that you can also give Catholic Spirit Radio your old car, truck, boat, motorcycle, or RV, even if it's not working? Donating your vehicle is easy. We take care of everything from pickup to tax receipt. Just go to CatholicSpiritRadio.com to click on the Donate Your Vehicle link or call 866-628-CARS. Hi, this is Bob Johnston. You're listening to Being Catholic right here on Catholic Spirit Radio. We're back from our break. We're talking about the 1619 Project. And we're leading into it from an article called The West Didn't Steal Its Way to Wealth by Deidre Nansen McCloskey. And it appears in the uh, National Review. Uh, and the magazine is uh, December 2021. And uh, we were talking about the, the fact of the, the great enrichment. And uh, stealing does not really make people especially wealthy. And a person might steal from his neighbors and get away with it. And they might enrich themselves by 10, 50, maybe even 100%. But take a look at what happened actually between 1800 and uh, today. 
and the great enrichment has been two and a half thousand percent. And you don't get rich by two and a half thousand percent by stealing and certainly not by slavery. By fourth grade arithmetic, the present $50 minus the miserable base in 1800 of $2 is $48. In other words, people are $48 a day better off than they were back in 1800. And uh, which divided by the base is about a factor of 25 or about a 2,500%. Stealing can't come remotely close to accounting for it. Stealing from the wretched of the earth doesn't even sound like a good criminal plan. In other words, stealing from slaves, from people who have nothing and are made into slaves, certainly doesn't get you 2,500% richer. Uh, and anyway, stealing from Peter to pay Paul can't enrich both, and certainly not by 2,500%. So you don't have a rich society by stealing. Consider, for example, British imperialism. Half of the Royal Navy, which was paid by, for by Britons at home, was assigned to protect the sea routes to India. Glorious. Yet India itself yielded no stolen benefit to the average Briton. In other words, you had this huge empire. You had it control a whole nation, a continent just about, India. And uh, the stealing from the people in India did not actually enrich the average Briton by a penny, not a shilling. India traded with Britain, sure. But trade is not stealing, and the trade would have happened regardless of whether the Raj was Britain or France or the domestic Rajas. Straightforward stealing from India happened only once. A window opened after the Battle of Plassey in 1757 through which some bold thieves entered. Robert Clive of India and Warren Hastings and some other nabobs made fortunes by stealing. Clive remarked that in view of his opportunities, by God, I stand astonished at my own moderation. Then the stealing stopped and the paying for the glory began, as did a little peaceful trade of Sri Lankan tea and Indian jute for Lancashire uh, goods and Yorkshire railway locomotives. And as rich as Clive and his fellow nabobs briefly became, their enrichment was trivial in national terms. It didn't pass on to, to the rest of the Britons, and Britain didn't get rich by stealing from India. Clive's wealth at his death was half of one-tenth of one percent of Britain's nice-to-have, you say, roughly $200 million nowadays. But it's not average enrichment-making then or now. It's a fly on the scale. Something, therefore, is deeply screwy about blaming the West's undoubted stealing and enslaving and other malfeasance for the poverty that remains in, in among peoples and other countries. While the malfeasance was taking place, humans, for the first time, went from misery to sufficiency, and they can now look forward in a few more generations to universal enrichment. As late as 1960, Four billion out of the five billion souls on the planet earn the old two dollars a day. Now it's one billion out of nearly eight billion that only earn two dollars a day. And truly rich places that were once shockingly poor, such as the Italian South or South Korea or South Tyrol, multiply. 
stealing does not a great enrichment make. Our friends on the left claim that rich people stealing from the English working class around 1800 resulted in uh, everyone getting richer by a factor of 25. Huh. You break into your neighbor's house and, like the assassin in the 2002 Tom Hanks gangster movie, Road to Perdition, you brutally murder Hanks's wife and one of his sons. Then you make off with his stuff. Out of this, says the left, the real income of everyone, you, Hanks, his other son, the gangster boss, everyone, rises by 2,500%. This is totally nuts. And the idea that the American wealth rose by 2,500% stealing from slaves is nutty. <clears throat> it's Monty Python loony. In 1930, the spoof of English history, 1066 and all that, put it this way. Many remarkable discoveries and inventions were made about the year 1800. Most remarkable among these was the, was the discovery made by all rich men in England at once, that women and children could work for 25 hours a day without many of them dying or becoming excessively deformed. This was known as the Industrial Revelation. 25? Wait a minute. In other 25 words... 25 hours a day? Yeah, he's spoofing here. Oh. In other words, the idea that somehow or another taking women and working them 2,500 hours a day could make us all rich. Yeah. I mean, right. these were cruel and awful things to do, but they certainly didn't make any country rich. They might have made a few people rich, and they did in some cases, but they certainly didn't make any country rich or any, any part of any country rich. After all, the historical problem with the hypothesis of stealing for enrichment is that stealing is historically commonplace yet it never resulted in a great enrichment until it finally did all of a sudden. Whoops, what kind of historical explanation is that? In other words, stealing went on ever since mankind started, and it went on for thousands and thousands of years, and mankind plodded along very poorly. And then all of a sudden in 1800, these people are claiming that the stealing suddenly turned into riches for everybody, that somehow our whole nation got rich because of slavery, that is, stealing labor from other people. <laughs> when you think about it, it's totally loony. How, how can something that didn't work for thousands and thousands of years, something that didn't make anybody rich, all of a sudden people got rich and then you say they got rich from the same thing they were doing for thousands of years that never resulted in any wealth for anybody except a few. And the economic problem is that the enrichment after 1800 was so very great that it can't possibly be explained by routine projects, whether financed by evil stealing or by virtuous abstention from consumption. Canals, for example, projects such as the Swedish state stealing of the conscripted labor of 58,000 soldiers to dig the Gota Canal uh, between 1810 and 1832 face sharply diminishing returns. Normal capital accumulation does. That's beside being economically idiotic in this case and in the case of most of the canals that were financed as nice-sounding internal improvements in the United States during the 1830s. Compare stealing tax money to build a high-speed railway between L.A. and San Francisco. In other words, we've just spent not long ago 
uh, in, under uh, President Obama, all kinds of money to build high-speed railways. Our, is our country all of a sudden all all richer on account of it? Well, I haven't seen a, a fast train yet. No, I haven't either. We got the track. Or consider the historical facts and the economic logic of stealing labor from black, black, black Americans. And here now we're coming to the core of things. Obviously, traditional chiefs were pretty nasty too and enslaving long before Europeans arrived on the coast and afterwards. In the moving anti-apartheid novel, Cry the Beloved Country, John Kamalo from a village in Natal and a big man in Johannesburg says, I do not say we are free here. And uh, the author goes on to say, a black man under apartheid in South Africa in 1948 could hardly say so. But uh, Kamalo goes on and says, but at least I am free of the chief. At least I am free of an old and ignorant man. And outright slavery was the practice of African kingdoms long before the British or even the Portuguese knew anything about them. True, the Atlantic slave trade gave the African kings a profitable market in which to sell their fellow Africans, especially to Brazil and the Caribbean. And they were selling their fellow Africans long before that market, but nevertheless, it did make them richer and gave them an additional incentive to wage war on their own Africans. It was like slavery in the Greek and Roman world. In the 16th year of the Peloponnesian War, the Athenians, fresh from some stimulating discussions with Socrates about justice, conquered Melos, then executed all of its men and sold all its women and children into slavery. A big king in Benin could simply grab another black man or woman or child. It was great business for him, though apparently not so great as to cause an enrichment of Africa itself. And notice that, that Africa never ever got rich by the slave trade. Some people in Africa got, got rich selling slaves, but certainly the country didn't. And the United States of America and other countries didn't get rich by buying slaves either. The great enrichment and the great wealth didn't come along because all of a sudden slavery came into existence in, in countries that didn't have it before. It had, it had been in existence for a long, long time all over the world. And it never made anybody except a few people rich. Most of the people in these, these states were poor. And in Africa, the poverty goes on in many places still to this day. And there's still slavery in Africa. And it went on long after it ended in the United States. And it never really enriched any of those countries. The East African slave trade, note, was as large and lasted longer than the West African one. Yet, it did not cause an enriching capitalism to flourish in the Middle East. The Barbary pirates and their North African allies and competitors enslaved European sailors or the victims of coastal raids in large numbers for hundreds of years, yet no great enrichment ensued there. The very word slave, of course, comes from Slav, those enslaved on the east side of the Holy Roman Empire and seized by Mongols in the Golden Hordes. North of the Black Sea and sold into the markets of Constantinople and Istanbul. No enrichment by a factor of 25 per person 
occurred there either. The Europeans to whom the king of Benin sold slaves had to compete with other Europeans for the privilege of taking later steps in the supply chain to the New World. It was not cheap to evade the British naval squadron patrolling the west coast of Africa to stop the trade. Nor, contrary to what people often say, was a slave at work in uh, Kingston or Charleston at any time cheap labor. To think so is to get the accounting and the economics entirely wrong. Slaves required food just as a, retract, as a tractor requires fuel. A slave in Charleston in 1860 sold for three times the average working man's annual income. If there was any super profit in buying him, the competition of other eager owners would drive up his price. Mm-hmm. Buying a John Deere tractor does not give an Iowa farmer super profit. Just consider that. Say it again. Buying a tractor does not give an Iowa farmer super profit. Take a look at some of the tractors we have today. How much work can they do compared to a slave? Certainly, some of these big tractors you see out there with about a 12-bottom or 14-bottom plow plowing the cornfields here in Illinois can probably do more work in five minutes than a thousand slaves could do in a month. And yet, the tractor doesn't make the farmer rich. So, as economic historians pointed out long ago, the profits from the West, West African trade stayed in Africa. Most of the profit went to the people selling the slaves, and those people were few in number, and very little, if any of it, ever went to the people outside that circle. I know the economic logic of thinking of slaves as tractors and of their profits as staying in Africa makes us uncomfortable. It sounds like being unfeeling and blaming the victim. Credit to your feelings, but the enslaving chiefs and kings and Mongols were not the victims. Their slaves, acquired by the initial act of people stealing, were. And it is they who did the stealing who made the money, not the rest of the country or the people who bought the slaves. In his second inaugural, inaugural, Lincoln declared that If God wills that the Civil War continue until all the wealth piled by the bondman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. It's a creditable sentiment, nobly expressed, yet the economics implied revived and extended now in the 1619 movement, that exploitation of slaves is what made the U.S. rich is totally mistaken. Slavery made a few Southerners a little richer, and a few Northerners too, and especially a lot of African kings. But to get up to the 2,500% increase in wealth per person in the United States and other countries It was liberty and mostly innovation that enriched Americans, including, at last, the descendants of the very slaves. It's hard to dispel the idea embedded in Lincoln's poetry. Teach U.S. History Organization assumes that Northern finance made the cotton kingdom possible because Northern factories required that cotton. The cotton idea underlies 
underlies recent books such as Walter Johnson's River of Dark Dreams, Sven Beckert's Empire of Cotton, A Global History, and Edward Baptiste's The Half Has Never Been Told, Slavery and the Making of American Capitalism. It's the left's two-century-old quest to find some original sin in their coinage capitalism. Marx thought it was piracy. The recent left has turned to environmental sin. Whatever. Anyway, malfeasance worthy of a satisfying indignation. The facts and and logic of the King Cotton historians are wrong. The enrichment of the modern world did not depend on cotton textiles. Cotton mills, true, were pioneers of some industrial techniques. Techniques applied also to wool and linen. Yet wool and linen break the link to cotton itself and numerous other techniques in mining and farming and engineering and from iron making, not to speak of biological and organizational innovations, had nothing to do with cotton. The UK in 1830 and the U.S. in 1860 were not cotton mills. We're going to stop here and take a break, and we'll come back and talk a little bit more about the so-called fruits of slavery and show why they never in any way ever made America rich or were the basis for America's wealth. And 1619 was not the basis on which America was founded. So stay with us. We'll be right back. You've been listening to Being Catholic with Bob Johnston on Catholic Spirit Radio. Hi, I'm Deacon Al, your host for Good News here on Catholic Spirit Radio. And I have good news from Bishop Louis Tilka. The dispensation from the obligation of attending Mass due to COVID has now ended. It is once again time for all Catholics who are capable to return to in-person participation in the Holy Mass. Our faith community is incomplete without you. We invite you to return to Mass this weekend, and please continue to pray for those who still suffer from the effects of COVID. Hi, this is Bob Johnston. You're listening to Being Catholic right here on Catholic Spirit Radio. We're back from our break, and we're talking about the fact that the 1619 Project is nonsense, that America did not get its wealth from slavery. Our country certainly wasn't founded on slavery, and uh, it certainly didn't enrich the United States or any other country, and it didn't account for all of the wealth that has accumulated and been produced in the last few hundred years, and that has made everyone better off. It's innovation that has done so, and it has had nothing to do with slavery. The facts and logic, I'll start again here. The facts and logic of the King Cotton historians are totally wrong. The enrichment of the modern world did not depend on cotton textiles. Cotton mills, true, were pioneers of some industrial techniques. Techniques applied also to wool and linen. Yet wool and linen break the link to cotton itself, as I just said and numerous other techniques in mining and farming and engineering and iron making, not to speak of biological and organizational innovations, had nothing to do with cotton. The UK in 1830 and the US in 1860 were not cotton mills. Nor is it true that if a supply chain is interrupted, there are no possible substitutes. Such was the theory behind strategic bombing, as on German industry and on the Ho Chi Minh Trail. But neither worked as promised. 
Yes, COVID-19 and the fevered governmental reaction to it did drop bombs on a good many supply chains. Yet only in the short run is it necessary for some things to come from a particular region by a particular route. The chain metaphor is not apt. A missing piece of the chain can be replaced, as in fact it was during the blockading of raw cotton from the South after 1861. During the Civil War, for example, British cotton was stopped from being supplied to most of the United States and also most of the world, or rather American cotton. But people found alternatives to it. British and other European manufacturers began to turn to Egypt to provide some of that that the South could not. And the cotton in Egypt was not grown with slave labor. Uh, Growing cotton never required slavery. Many whites in the South grew cotton before the war and after. In other words, the fact that slaves in the South produced cotton does not imply that they were essential or causal in the production. Yes, they produce cotton. If you have a slave, you have to have the slave do something. That doesn't mean that without the slave, you couldn't do it otherwise. Cotton was not uh, a slave crop in India or in southwest China, where it had been grown in bulk anciently. That slaves in the South produced cotton doesn't mean that they were essential to producing it. Economic historians have been thinking this way about U.S. slavery for half a century, but you wouldn't know it from the King Cotton School. That school has been devastated recently in detail by two economic historians, Alan Olmsted of UC Davis and Paul Rose of the University of Michigan. They point out, for example, that the influential and leftist economist Thomas Piketty grossly exaggerated the share of slaves in U.S. wealth. Piketty's estimates were then used by Baptiste to put slavery at the, at the center of U.S. economic history. Slavery was evil and central to U.S. and social political history, sure enough, but the evil was not the cause of economic enrichment. Almstead and Rhodes note, too, that the price of slaves increased from 1820 to 1860 because of an astonishing rise in the productivity of the cotton plant achieved by selective breeding, innovation, not capital accumulation or exploitation made cotton king, although a little one. The big king, that is, was a freedom invented in the 18th century and implemented slowly after 1800 that let people have a go. And that freedom, of course, and we can get to that at another time, and I've gotten to it before, depended on the whole idea of a Christian civilization that came into existence a lot longer ago than that. Uh, The right word for what we've seen since then is not the economically misleading word capitalism, but rather innovation. What made us rich was not capital accumulation, whether by the evil thieves or by virtuous uh, savers, but a new birth of freedom to try out new ideas. The great enrichment is the story of political, the political idea of liberty leading to massive innovation from the steam engine and the modern university to containerization and the internet. If stealing from colonies explained the great enrichment, then Sweden, which had a trivial overseas empire, would be poorer than Britain, 
which had the largest one in history. But the fact is, is that's not the case. Sweden became richer than Britain. If slave stealing did, that is, if slave stealing is what caused wealth, then Canada, which had no slaves, would be radically poorer than the U.S. And it's not radically poorer than we are. If stealing dignity and autonomy did, then South African whites said to be benefited by apartheid over the large majority of blacks and colors would be much richer than Australian whites, who merely dealt with a small minority of aboriginals. If Jim Crow had been good for the U.S. South, it too would be richer. But think about that. Think about the Civil War itself. Think about what uh, General Sherman said, uh, you know, before he was actually General Sherman, when he was uh, working in a military school down in Louisiana and the Civil War broke out and uh, Sherman was resigning his position because he was going to go with the Army, you know, of the North. And he told his fellow Southerners, he said, this is madness. He said, you people down here, he said, are hot-blooded. And it may look like things are going your way for a little while. But he said, you are going up against one of the most powerful industrial giants in the world. And it is sitting right on your doorstep. He said, you can't even make a pair of shoes or bind a book together. And almost everything you use and all your equipment comes from the north or it comes from Britain. You don't make it yourselves. In other words, he was pointing out to the south that they were far poorer than the north. How would that be possible if slavery was responsible for our wealth? You would think that the South would be much richer than the North. Think about it. How would it be possible for, say, New England, you know, a, an area in which the soil is mostly rock and the climate is cold? How, how is it that New England could be richer than the South with a wonderful climate, beautiful country, Lots of good arable land, plenty of uh, an area that they called the black belt, which they meant, you know, was the beautiful black soil that was good for growing cotton and many other crops. How was it that the South, with all of its slavery, was poorer than the New England states, you know, who, who lived in a climate of cold and rock? But they were. If Jim Crow had been good for the U.S. South, it too would be richer. The countless conquering and enslaving societies following on the Sumerians, the Almecs, and the Shang dynasty would have produced a great enrichment long before the great enrichment that started around 1800. But why didn't they? For a few years in the 1980s, in each spring term, I taught a class of 430 undergraduates at the University of Iowa, what we still called Western Civilization. I taught the kids that history is a story we tell, disciplined by ascertainable facts. You can tell European history from 1648 to 1948, or even to 1988, as a tragedy, or you can tell it as a comedy. In the Department of English, we call Hammett a tragedy, because everyone gets killed in the last scene. And we call the Winter's Tale a comedy, because everyone gets married. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you, you can tell European or world history as a tragedy leading, say, to the Holocaust. It's worthwhile to tell it in that way if you want to. You can tell American history as a tragedy of racism. That's worthwhile, too. The kids need to know that such evil of populist tyranny actually happened at scale. 
but you can also tell it as a comedy, leading to liberty and the great enrichment also at scale. In Europe and the U.S. and now the world, they also need to know that. The problem is not telling both stories and then proceeding to burn the books of the other side in the flames of indignation left or right. No challenging facts or logics get through. It results in ignorant yet half-satisfied or yet self-satisfied kids who become conspiratorial adults easily enchanted by demagogues left or right. In other words, it's easy enough to fool the kids. They don't stop and think about what actually happened and what's really going on. So let's take a look again. Uh, the fact is, is that uh, people who actually believe that this is true, just take a look at things. Uh, why was the South again poor compared to the North? Why did Sherman automatically give that speech about the fact that the South can't even produce stuff, you know, that the North can with all of its slaves, all of its good weather, all of its good good uh, land and uh, uh, eager and, and people, why were they poorly educated in the South compared to the North? Why were all the industrial areas in, in, in the North and not in the South? Why did states like New England, who were poor in land and uh, other things richer, than the people in the South who were rich in, in land and slaves. And what about South America? Slavery went on in South America long after it stopped in the United States in a lot of countries in South America. Yet South America didn't get rich, and the United States became far, far richer after slavery stopped. And why did you need slaves to produce cotton? Actually, after the Civil War, the South produced more cotton without slaves. And many white people worked in cotton fields that still do to this day and produce all kinds of cotton with machinery that's far, far advanced over what slaves could do. And why was it that actually the slave labor was kept afloat? Slavery was going out of existence until Eli Whitney invented the cotton gin. It was an innovation by the industrial north that made it possible for the south to even keep slaves. If it wasn't for that, the South would, the slavery would have ended in the first place. And to say that the, the South, or the, our country was founded on slavery because the founders owned, owned slaves. Yes, 50% of them or so did. But most of them actually had an attitude against slavery, including Thomas Jefferson and George Washington. Why did they have that attitude against slavery? They didn't think it was actually right. And many of them freed their slaves. And uh, George Washington uh, ended his slavery before he died. Uh, it was impossible for some of them actually to free their slaves because they were so far in debt. If slavery was so profitable, why were they in debt? And in the South, why was it that the slaves feared one of the things they feared the worst, especially those who were working closer to the North and were on good plantations in which the conditions were not too bad? Why were they constantly afraid that the plantation might be sold off, that the plantation owner might go broke and he would have to sell everything and they would be sold south into a worse form of slavery? Why were they afraid of that if slavery was so profitable? But the fact is, is that happened a lot. A lot of plantations went broke and the slave owners went broke. So why did that happen if slavery was so profitable? 
you would think if you own slaves, your, your, your living would be assured, but that wasn't even the case for individual slaveholders. And again, what about Africa? Shouldn't all the countries in Africa be much richer than, than the United States? They had far more slaves and slavery went on much, much longer there. So why wasn't that the case? And then again, as we pointed out, uh, farmers today own tractors that do the work of a thousand slaves. And yet the people that own those tractors are not rich any more than the, all the slave owners were rich. There were some slave owners that truly were rich, and there were some people that made money buying and selling slaves, but it certainly didn't enrich the country around them, and it certainly didn't enrich America, and it certainly wasn't was responsible for our wealth, and it certainly didn't win the Civil War for the South. Had slavery made the South rich, they should have easily been able to win the Civil War. They were more, more motivated than most people in the North were, but they didn't win it. And they didn't win it because they didn't have the goods and the services and the money that the North had. And the North did not depend on slavery. So, again, uh, innovation and freedom and the whole idea of the rights of people is what actually increased the wealth for people all over the world. And where did that come from? It actually came originally from Christianity. It actually came from the idea that people had dignity and that they were free in Christ and that they had a soul and that every individual was worth saving and every individual had certain rights that the ancient world never extended to anybody. The ancient world depended on slavery for thousands of years. It was common. It was taken for granted. And yet the ancient world, except for a few people in it compared to everybody else, was never rich. Most people went along during all that time of slavery and even during the south of slavery on about $2 a day, eking out a living and barely making it. And what actually increased the wealth was had nothing to do with slavery and had everything to do with the notion that our country was founded on, that all men had equal dignity under God, that all men in Christ had certain self-worth and that all men were entitled to keep the ownership and profits of what they had. And eventually that was finally extended to the freed people and is extended to the freed people today and to all people who live in a Christian world with a Christian economy. That is what produced the wealth of nations. And that's what produces the wealth today. It had nothing to do with slavery. And the 1619 Project defeats itself by its own logic. Anyone can see it. You don't really need facts or figures or anything else to refute it. You can just take a look at what happened in the world and take a look at what happened in the United States and take a look at the fact that everywhere in the world, slavery did not enhance people. Even empires did not enhance the ordinary average citizen. In fact, probably it actually caused more poverty than it did wealth. So innovation and the minimum freedom necessary for innovation, that is the ability to keep what you make for yourself and to profit from your own ideas and your own work and your own inventions is what in lifted everybody up out of poverty and has increased our wealth by 2,500%. It had nothing to do with slavery. And so people out there should be able to refute this whole idiotic idea of the 1619 Project in just a few minutes of pointing these logical consistencies out. 
So we're going to stop here and say our prayer. I hope this puts the 1619 Project to rest. St. Michael, the archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, Prince of the heavenly host, by the power of God, thrust into hell all evil spirits who wander through the world for the ruin of souls. Amen. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to Being Catholic with Bob Johnston on Catholic Spirit Radio. If you'd like to contact Bob, email bob at catholicspiritradio.com. Again, that's bob at catholicspiritradio.com. Catholic Spirit Radio relies on your support to bring programming like this and EWTN 24 hours a day. Please help keep Catholic Spirit Radio on the air with your generous support. Donate online at catholicspiritradio.com. Or send a donation to Catholic Spirit Radio, 108 Boykins Place, Normal, Illinois, 61761. That's Catholic Spirit Radio, 108 Boykins Place, Normal, Illinois, 61761. Catholic Spirit Radio is a 501c3, and all donations are tax-deductible. Thank you for your support of Catholic Spirit Radio. Dr. Ray Garendi. If I discipline consistently, I'd be disciplining constantly. If I were consistent in my discipline, that would mean I would discipline more, and I'd be disciplining him often. The exact opposite is the case. More consistent discipline leads to less constant discipline. Why? Because you're predictable. The child knows if he does A, you'll do B. That is why when you are predictable in your authority, you will actually have to use that authority less. Consistent discipline leads to less constant discipline. The more you act when you need to act, the less you will have to act in the future with similar misbehavior.